We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning. So if you want to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, uh, you can find that text also printed for you in your bullets in Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. Um, some of y'all have heard me tell this story before, but several years ago when I was the campus minister at Appalachian State in Boone, Parking on campus was a bit of a problem, as it is on many college campuses. But the first few years I was there, they actually gave a parking pass to campus ministers for free, unlike the faculty who they charged for their parking pass. I don't know if they knew that or not. But they gave us these hang tags that were vendor hang tags. And the vendor hang tag was basically, from what I understood, what they would give the Pepsi guy when he came on campus so he could make deliveries wherever he needed to go. And so we could, we could basically park almost anywhere we wanted to on campus for free. And so finally one day I asked somebody, why do y'all give us vendor hang tags? How did we, how did we get class, classified in the vendor category? And they said, well, I guess it's because you're selling Jesus. I guess it's because you're selling Jesus. And you know, that might not be the way I want to word that. Um, but, but we were offering people Jesus, aren't we? We were offering people Jesus free of charge to come and embrace Jesus Christ. Uh, as a campus ministry, we wanted to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve in His kingdom. And that's what we want to do here at Grace as well. We want to reach and equip uh, that people would know Jesus and, and grow in their knowledge of Him. And I'd argue that's really the, the purpose of the church in general, that we are to reach and that we are to equip. Uh, if that's our purpose, if we're supposed to be about reaching and equipping, how do we know if we're accomplishing that? How do we uh, evaluate ourselves in that? Uh, and secondly, how do we go about that? How do we go about accomplishing our purpose of, of reaching and equipping? This is our, our first Sunday as a particular church, our first Sunday out from un, under the umbrella of Mount Calvary. So I think it's a good time to think about those things. And this text is one that I think will help us to think about those things. So look with me, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. This is God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, help us as we think about this text to morning, this morning. Help me to, to be faithful to what it says and to communicate that well. And, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be here and that you would work uh, during this time. Uh, that we might be people indeed who love you and love our neighbor 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first of all, the question I want to ask to start with is, is how do we know at Grace Pres if we're accomplishing our purpose as a church? And if our purpose is to reach and equip, another way to ask that question might be, what does a reached and equipped person look like? Right, what, what do they look like? What are their characteristics? What are the characteristics of someone who's been reached and equipped with the gospel? In verse 28, this scribe comes up to Jesus and asks, which commandment is the greatest commandment of all the commandments? Now, the rabbis had gone through and they had identified what they thought to be 613 different commandments in the Old Testament. And they would spend their time debating which one of these were heavy and which one of these were light. Which one of these were really important and which ones of these like, ah, maybe we can blow this one off. And Jesus says, I can sum all of this up for you in two commandments. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of like somebody took the New England Patriots playbook and they boiled it down into two things and and it was get a really good quarterback and short wide receivers and and you'll be fine. Jesus takes it all and he, he boils it down into these two things. He says this is the main thing. Love God and love your neighbor. And I'd argue that that's what a reached and equipped person looks like. It's somebody who's growing in their love for God and growing in their love for their neighbor. Now, on the one hand, we see in this that the goal of all these commandments, the goal of the law, is not that we're just able to check off boxes. It's that we actually become loving people. But on the other hand, the law of God is there to show us what loving other people looks like. We don't just have to guess, and we're not free to just make it up. Well, this is what it's like to be loving. No, God's law shows us what it's like to be loving. And these two commandments sum up everything that all the other commandments are driving at. You can take everything in God's law and put it under one of these two headings. Love God, love your neighbor. So, let's think about those two separately just for a minute. First of all, loving God, that's the greatest commandment. The main thing uh, is to love God. Uh, Clemson fans, the, the way your heart burns when you see the Tigers running down the hill on game day. Uh, the, the way a man and woman look at each other when they see each other for the, for the first time on, the, on their wedding day. That type of love, that type of passion is only a hint of the affection we're to feel toward God. We're to love God with our hearts. We're to have holy affections for Him. We're to love God with our thoughts. We're to strive to think in ways that are pleasing to Him. We're to strive to figure out how can I do life in a way that brings glory and honor to Him. We're to to love God with our words, which we have done this morning as we sang praises to Him together. Uh, You know, we naturally talk about things we're familiar with, whether that's you know, food or recreational activities or music, whatever we love. God is a, to be a subject that ought to be familiar to us. Someone we know and love and love to speak of. We're to love God with our deeds, with our time and our treasure and our talents. We're to, we're to take the, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments seriously, which these first four are all about how do you love God? We're to have no other gods before Him, meaning we put Him first. We're to have no graven images, meaning we we try to do worship in the way that He wants us 
to do worship. We're not to take His name in vain, which means if, if I call myself a Christian, then that ought to be weighty. There ought to be something that backs that up. We're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We're to worship and to rest and to take a break. We ought to be able to say, God, you're in control and my life is not going to spin out of control if I don't check my texts and my emails for one day. We're to rejoice that we have this day where we can turn our hearts toward God. A, a reached and equipped person like, is, is taking those things seriously. Um, they're growing in their love for God. A reached and equipped person is also someone who's loving their neighbor. We're to give a certain priority to the needs of our neighbor. We're to, to recognize our neighbor and the people God brings into our paths every day. We're to realize that our neighbor includes the poor and the immigrant and the refugee and the sick and the needy. N- not just the people like me. Not just the people that I'm comfortable with. We're to live out this idea that all people are made in the image of God. Uh, Congressman John Lewis, I heard him speaking this week, he was talking about uh, how during the civil rights movement they were trained when someone was was beating them or, or kicking them, they were trained to always look them in the eye. The whole time that they were kicking them or whatever, they were to always look them in the eye. And I thought, man, you're recognizing that that person, even though they're tormenting you, is made in the image of God. And you're praying that they'll, they'll recognize that you are made in the image of God. And that's going to flip a switch in there somewhere. All people are made in the image of God. And we're to recognize that and to treat them as such. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. All people are made in God's image, and we're to, to love those that are made in God's image. We're to, to love our neighbor by obeying that second half of the Ten Commandments. This is the half of the Ten Commandments that instructs us what it looks like to love our neighbor. So we take these seriously. We honor our father and our mother and those God has placed in authority over us. We not only refrain from murder, but actively seek to do good to other people. We are to avoid adultery in all forms and to love our spouse sacrificially. Instead of stealing, we're to seek to be generous and kind and giving toward others. Instead of lying, we're to speak truthfully. We're to avoid gossip and slander and speaking poorly of others. We're not to covet, but to learn to be content with what God has given us. And finally, if we love our neighbor, we'll want our neighbor to know God. 
and to know God's love as well. Uh, Penn Gillette is an atheist comedian and he was telling a story once of a man giving him a Bible, coming up to him after a show and giving him a, a Gideon's Bible. And he talked about how much he respected that. It didn't make him mad. It didn't make him uncomfortable. He respected the fact that, that this guy would come up to him like that. And he said this, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If we love our neighbors, we want them to know Jesus, to know the love of God as well. So, some questions just to think about in regard to that as, as we're thinking, I mean, how... Am I being equipped? Am I growing? Am I loving God and neighbor? Do you feel anything for God? Like, do you have heart affections for God? Or is this just kind of some religious academic exercise that we're engaged in here? How are you doing at loving God and neighbor? Have, have you ever stopped doing anything simply because you love Jesus? Have you ever started doing anything? But you'd have no reason to do otherwise simply because you love Jesus. Where are you struggling at loving your neighbor? Which neighbors are you struggling to love? Who are the people that you, that you struggle to love? Uh, but does your particip- participation in grace as a church arise from your desire to become a person who really loves God and loves your neighbor? Do you really want to grow in these areas or is church just kind of a southern cultural add-on thing it's just one of those things we do as as nice southern people Uh, you know when you go to the the grocery store and and you buy the oreos and the whoppers and doritos and the cool whip and then you're feeling a little like guilty about that so you throw the salad in the cart too all right you don't really love the salad. You love the Oreos with your heart and soul and mind and strength, right? But, but the salad will balance things out and make it feel a little bit better. Uh, are we doing that with God? We don't really love God that much, but he's kind of like the salad we've thrown into the cart with everything else. And maybe it'll, maybe it'll balance everything else out. And maybe that, that sal- I'll eat a little bit of that salad and I'll be healthy enough. Do you love God? Do you love neighbor? your neighbor and then do you have a a holy dissatisfaction that we don't have a line of people out the back door of the church waiting to be baptized this morning because they've come to know jesus christ are you dissatisfied that we're not doing a better job of reaching unbelievers with the gospel Uh, reached and equipped person is someone who's growing in their love for god and growing in their love for their neighbor Growing in their love for God and growing in their love for their neighbor. Alright, so that's, that's what we're trying to get. How do we get there? How do we get there? How do we go about accomplishing our purpose? I think it's a two-part answer. What we want to do as a church is, is kind of show and tell. Uh, we want to we show people what God requires. And then we want to show people also what God provides. But we want to show and tell what God requires, and we want to show and tell what God provides. Now, how do we reach the crib? First of all, we show what God requires. In verse 29, um, Jesus says, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the scribe, you can see how he understands this in verse 32. He says, 
you are right, teacher. You're, you have truly said that He is one and there is no other besides Him. There's no other besides Him. Part of what we want to communicate as a church is that there is a God who rules over all of this. And, and that this is His. There is, one, there is one God who is and who has created all things. And when you think about it, even those who would deny God's existence can't escape His existence in the middle of denying it. It's God's air we breathe as we deny Him. Steven Weinberg is a Nobel Prize winning physicist and he once said, the more the universe seems comprehensible to me, the more it seems pointless. And then in an interview he elaborated on this saying that despite the fact that the universe seems cold and without meaning, we can give it meaning. Well, how do we give it meaning? He said, we do it by loving one another, discovering things about nature, by creating works of art. We may not be in any great cosmic drama, but faced with an unloving and impersonal universe, we can create for ourselves a little island of warmth and love and science and art. Sounds cozy. Uh, the, the, the person interviewing him said, for an atheist, you sound an awful lot like a religious person. Because he, he's denying, you're denying that the universe has meaning, but at the same time, you know that it has to have meaning. And so you try to create meaning in it. But if the universe is impersonal and there are no moral absolute values, then how can you insist that anybody else be loving? And how can you insist that anybody else care about science? And how can you insist that anybody else care about art or good music or or, or any of that? How can you insist on anything? See, you're trying to live like there are moral values, that there is beauty, while at the same time you're trying to remove the one who makes all of that possible. There is a God. There is one God. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God who takes on human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our job to point people to that God who is. Uh, Sturgill Simpson is one of my new favorite country artists. He's got a song called Turtles All the Way Down in which he sings, I've seen Jesus play with flames in a lake of fire that I was standing in. Met the devil in Seattle and spent nine months inside the lion's den. I met Buddha yet another time and he showed me a glowing light within. But I swear that God is there every time I glare in the eyes of my best friend. Says my son, it's all been done and someday you're going to wake up old and gray. So go and try to have some fun showing warmth to everyone you meet and greet and cheat along the way. There's a gateway in our minds that leads somewhere out there beyond this plane where reptile aliens made of light cut you open and pull out all your pain. Kind of an odd ending there. Uh, but but, but, but do, you, do, you hear the, do you hear the searching in that? Do you hear the searching in what he's singing? I've, I've been down all of these different paths, but the closest I've gotten to God is in the eyes of my best friend. So I'll just create meaning and try to make the best of it before I die. But even as he says that, you, you can just hear him sense that he knows that something is wrong and he longs for something to make it better to take the pain away, even if it's 
reptile aliens who show up and cut out all of our pain. And our, our job is to say that to Sturgill and those like him, you're on to something. Something is wrong with the universe. You do see something of God in the eyes of your friend because we're all made in the image of God, but your friend isn't God. And the pain and the brokenness that you sense is because we're all estranged from God. And that Jesus you dismiss so casually is actually the way back to Him. We proclaim the message that there is one God who has made himself known, who, who calls all people to love him with their heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, to be concerned with the needs of your neighbor as you are with your own needs. In another text, Jesus says, he sums it up this way, what God requires. He says, just be perfect. Be, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That, that's what God requires if we are to know Him, if we are to enter His presence, that we would perfectly love Him and love our neighbor. Uh, I heard somebody say that if there's a, a human goodness scale of 1 to 100, uh, then a, a serial killer is probably about a 3, uh, and Mother Teresa is probably about a 95, but the gap between 99 and 100 is infinite. And none of us can do enough good works to, to fill that gap between 99 and 100. And, and I, I think part of the, well, part of the reason the scribe's answer is, is wise and good here is that he's beginning to realize that loving God and loving neighbor is more important than jumping through religious hoops. That he could jump through as many as he wanted to. And as important as they may be, they're not getting at the main thing, unless they're done rightly, to love God and to love your neighbor. He sees there's, there's more to it than just religion. And there's so much more than that. So much more than that. That even if you're a 95, even if you're a 98, even if you're a 99, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. You say, well, wait, I'm, I'm into social justice. I'm into helping the poor. Well, well that's great. When are you moving to Haiti? Uh, and, and when you get done there, when are you, when are you moving to the, to the next place? Because there's always going to be more that you could do. Uh, and in the midst of all you're doing, have you got any addictions going on? you got anything wrong going on in your life in the midst of all this good work? Any character flaws at all? See, the, the, the Bible leaves us all in the position of Isaiah Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, living amidst the people of unclean lips. Uh, It leaves us in the place of Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is this standard that we have failed to meet. And that none of us, because of that, none of us can enter into God's presence. And that even our good works are tainted by our wrong motives. And so, in order for people to be reached and equipped, they've got to do some wrestling with that. There is a God. There is this standard. There is something that God requires of you. But that's not all we tell. We show what God requires. We also want to show what God provides. At the end of the passage, Jesus tells the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And it's a a good thing... It's meant to be an encouragement on the one hand, but on the other hand, you ask, 
well, why? Why is he not far? Why isn't he just in already? All right, he, he, he understood that you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor. Why isn't he in already? He understands burnt offerings don't get him in. He, he's starting to, to see what the law requires of him. But he hasn't gotten quite placed, quite to the place where he can see that he can't do what the law requires of him. And that he needs someone else to take care of that for him. He's heading in the right direction. And it's like Jesus is saying, you're, you're going the right way, just pay attention to what happens. Pay attention to what's about to happen. Pay attention to what's about to happen on the cross. Because the cross is what the scribe has got to get for him to go from being not far from the kingdom of God to actually in the kingdom of God. The cross is what he's got to understand And the cross is what we have to understand. Because the cross is where Jesus takes what we should have taken upon himself. The cross is the place where Jesus, who has loved God and neighbor perfectly, goes and bears the punishment for our not having loved God and neighbor perfectly. And so the gospel message that we take to the world is look what Jesus has done. Look at what Jesus has done. Believe in Him. Receive Him as your Savior. Rest your hope not in what you do, but in what Jesus has done. Uh, Anderson Verjal. I don't know, there's not probably many people that know that name. Uh, He's a professional basketball player who, for the Simpsons fans, looks a lot like Sideshow Bob. But that's that's a whole different thing. He started playing last year, he started out last season playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And he ended the season, because he was traded in the middle of the season, playing for the Golden State Warriors. Well, it just so happened that Cleveland and Golden State played in the NBA championship, and Verzal's current team, the Golden State Warriors, lost. However, because of the connection that the team had had with him earlier in the year, they offered him a championship ring. Now, I know this illustration isn't perfect, but, but, but think about it just in the context of the NBA Finals. Here's this guy playing for the Warriors who's doing everything he can to keep Cleveland from winning. He is competing against them, and he loses, and Cleveland wins, and they say, we want you to share in the championship. We want you to have a, a part of what we're rejoicing in. I mean, that's the gospel. We have actively competed against God. We have done nothing to earn our forgiveness and Jesus does it for us and he says here, I want you to have a share in what I've done. No, you don't deserve it. Yes, you've worked against it but I have accomplished this for you and offer it to you as a gift. That's the gospel. That's how we show what God has provided to others. We want to show people what God requires in word and deed. We want to speak that. We want to live that. Because if we're going to say God requires certain things, then we ought to at least be trying to do those certain things. But we are also trying to show and tell what God provides. We serve others expecting nothing in return. It's like that, that's grace. We demonstrate grace in the way that we live. We give of ourselves to others. We love our neighbors. And as we're doing that, you know what's going to happen? We're going to to fail. And we're going to sin. 
and we're going to treat our neighbor unlovingly. But guess what? When we fail, that's one of your best opportunities to present the gospel. Say, it's not about me, and I'm sorry, and I, I, I repent, uh, but this is why I need Jesus, because I'm a sinner. And this is why I think you need Jesus as well. Let me close with this story. Uh, John Wesley was born in 1703. He was the 15th child uh, of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. His father was an Episcopal clergyman. John Wesley served as a professor of Greek uh, and logic at Oxford University. He went on to be ordained as a priest in the Church of England, and then he wound up uh, back at Oxford, and he got involved in this kind of club known as the Holy Club with George Whitfield and some, some other guys. And it was a group of men who prayed and read the Bible together and held one another accountable and things like that on a daily basis. They read through the Greek New Testament together. So ha- try that for your accountability group. Um, they would fast on a, on a regular weekly basis. They would pray for an hour every day. They would help the poor and the sick. 1735, John Wesley goes on a missions trip to Georgia uh, to seek to reach the Indians in in the the colony of Georgia. Uh, And as he went over there, he constantly quarreled with the people he was working with. He made no progress with the Indians. He almost got sick and died. And he wrote this, I went to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? Because in spite of all that religious activity, he was beginning to see, I I don't really know that I know this Jesus that I'm trying to tell everybody else about. And he became more and more convinced of that fact that he just didn't know Jesus. So fast forward 1738. He opens his Bible one day sort of randomly and he opens it to this verse. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. He said he, he got up that night and he went to a meeting where someone was reading from Martin Luther's uh, preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. And he writes, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And saved me from the law of sin and death. See, before you and I can reach and equip others, before I can love God and my neighbor, I have to be reached myself. I have to know Jesus myself. I have to see and understand and rest in what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And so I'd ask you this morning as we think about reaching and equipping, where are you? Where are you? Are you, are you close to the kingdom of God? Maybe even busy religiously? Are you in the kingdom of God resting in what Jesus Christ has done for you? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I pray that we would not be caught up Uh, in jumping through religious hoops, uh, but that we would see what you require and what you have provided for us in Jesus Christ, and that we would see our need and that we would rest in him. And Lord Jesus, as we rest in you, I pray that that would change us, 
that seeing the way you have loved us would change us so that we in turn are more loving people. Uh, Help us in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.